0: Don't clap yet, you have no idea how long I intend to go. (laughs) It is, uh, it's just a joy uh, and an honor to to receive the invitation to be here at a personal level. um, Don't share this across the fellowship, the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. I now am in Fort Wayne working for the office, but your pastors are a couple of my favorites. Um, As Wes said, we've shared a long history, um, and uh, it was 10 years ago or so, where I used to make that trip down here week in, week out, well, every other week, and got to share. Luckily, you've upgraded on teaching pastors now. And, uh, uh, and then Levi, uh, he did so many internships with us, I, I lost count. And uh, he and I would share an office, and he, he's just a, a dear brother, and it's been fun to watch him become a pastor. And he and I still uh, get together once a month just for some encouragement and some prayer together. And um, so you, you got a good group. And uh, it's, it's just an honor to be able to be here alongside them uh, this morning. And then from the fellowship perspective, uh, I come to you from the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. That's a group of churches that you're connected with and partnered with. Um, we love to receive the invitation to come in and join churches and what they're doing. And, and we need that invitation. We are not a top-down denomination. We don't move your pastors around. We don't own your buildings. We don't tell you what to do, what you can't do. We're bottom-up. We're here to serve and connect you as a fellowship of churches. And so the invitation to be here personally, the invitation to be here on behalf of the fellowship, and I'll get to a little bit of that towards the end of the sermon, um, is just a real joy. Before we jump into the text, I want you to think about with me just the joy and the grace and the honor of invitation. Let's not rush past that. Invitations are something that we've all received, and I'm not just talking about the standard birthday party invitation or the graduation party invitation. Anybody got some grad parties coming up? Um, or the wedding invitation i 'm a man, so when I get those invitations, I, my mind immediately goes to, well, how much of a gift do I have to buy right? Uh, so not the invitations where you 're like expected to give something, but those invitations that come where, where the invitations offered just so that you can receive, just so that you can benefit. Uh, tomorrow morning, my boys and I, I have two young boys, eleven and an eight year old. And we're going to go out on Lake Erie walleye fishing with a friend of ours from Adrian. This is the third year in a row. He said, why don't you bring the boys and we'll go walleye fishing. I don't pay anything. I don't do it. I don't cut up the fish. He gives us all the fish that we catch. We come home and I enjoy eating it. I don't do anything for that gift. That's just an invitation we receive and we enjoy as a dad who didn't or g- grow up with a dad to take me fishing. Or to have the resources to, to go out on Lake Erie all the time. It's doubly honoring for me because he's giving my boys something and an experience I can't give. But think about it for you. It's simple. Think about times where you've been invited to have a meal with someone in their home rather than meet up at the restaurant. There's something precious about getting to be in each other's homes. And, and that's one of those things we don't do as much anymore as a culture. Think about a time where maybe you were invited to speak counsel or speak wisdom into somebody, and somebody wanted to know what your perspective or what your thoughts on the matter were. They invited you to share that. Maybe it was a crisis moment. Maybe something happened to the family friend or the neighbor, and you were you were invited to, to join them as they navigated through this unexpected curveball that life threw at them. Maybe it was a benchmark moment in life. Like, their son came home from the services, or maybe they, their, their, their son or daughter was having a defining moment, and they wanted you to be a part of that. In a room this size, some of us are married. Think of the time when you, your spouse asked you if you would spend the rest of your lives together. That's a hefty invitation, isn't it? And then sometimes those invitations, they come with just a little bonus. Things you didn't expect. Like anybody sports fans or, or, and I'll, I'll, for the sake of this illustration, involve racing like cars. I don't know how driving and turning left all the time is a sport. But anyways, um, (laughs) and and you got invited to go to a sporting event and you're like, that's going to be awesome. And it was awesome to go, but you didn't know that you were going to get to sit on the 50 yard line or you didn't know that you're going to sit in the press box. That's never happened to me, but I've always, you know, dreamed about going and showing up on the 50 yard line. I was asking my coworkers, because anytime I preach now, they're part of my sermon prep team. I was like, "Think of invitations you've received," and, and one of the gals in the office, she goes, "Well, I remember I was invited to go to this retreat this one weekend. I wasn't really that excited about going, but I went and come to find out, I met my spouse on the weekend. Invitation. It, it, it's a gift of grace. It's an honor. There's a joy to it. And I know it's been said in your series already, but I don't want to skip past. And in fact, some of this might seem very elementary to you today, but I, pr- I propose it's absolutely foundational. In our world, in the midst of our busy, hurried, and worried world, don't miss that Jesus invites you to rest. Jesus doesn't need anything from you in giving you that invitation. This isn't the grad party invitation where you're on the list hoping that he's going to get at least 20 bucks from you, okay? Jesus doesn't need anything from you in this invitation. Jesus just, he wants to gift to you something he knows, he experiences, he has, he wants to share with you. And and it's an invitation that has all kinds of bonuses, all kinds of unexpected things that you would never anticipate. And you're like, God, that is good. Jesus invites us to rest. And the good news this morning is that wasn't just an invitation for his original followers, that's an invitation for us. One of my favorite invitations of Jesus is in Mark 6. We're told that people were coming and going, they didn't even have a time to eat, and Jesus hadn't had a lot of one on one time with his 12 apostles. And he said, Why don't you come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest? Isn't that a beautiful invitation? Notice it's come with me, it's not, Hey, why don't you get away? I'll handle the crowds for now. No, no. Jesus wants to share this gift with them. By yourselves. There's an intimacy to it. This isn't just some generic thing that everybody gets. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. It's, it's a focused gift. It, it, re, it requires some attention and get some rest. And again, that, that's especially good when we feel the weight of our pressure and our internal pace and external pace is out of control. And so we're going to explore a passage from the book of Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, to really dig into the foundation of this invitation Jesus gives to rest. And Hebrews can be a confusing book to many. Um, It's a book that draws on the Hebrew people's experience. We read about it in the Old Testament, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know many of you skip right past the Old Testament, especially those, those, those books that get into the details. Well, Hebrews relies on people knowing a lot of those details, but but don't be intimidated by the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, a good way to understand Hebrews is it's just the Jesus is better book. Hebrews is just helping people see that Jesus is better. Long ago, in many ways, God revealed things to our ancestors, but Jesus is better. In these recent days, we have a better prophet. And then chapter one, chapter two, Jesus is better than the angels. As glorious as the angels are, Jesus is better. Then in chapter 3, hey, remember Moses, he's the one that led us out of Egypt. You Disney fans, Prince of Egypt, they did okay with it, okay? Mo- Jesus is better than Moses. He's a better deliverer than Moses. And then chapter 4 begins right in the middle of that history of coming out of, the, of Egypt. And not only is Jesus better than Moses, but Jesus is a better Sabbath. See, up to that point, they understood Sabbath as a day of the week, And part of God's design, part of his gift, but the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 rest still remains and Jesus' rest is better. So let me read Hebrews chapter 4 and then say a few more things by way of introduction and we'll dive in. We're not going to go verse by verse this morning. I'm going to read it verse by verse. But we're just going to auger into four points of emphasis that you'll discover as I read. Chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, again, he's coming off of chapter 3 where he's describing the people who were delivered from Egypt but didn't have the faith to enter Canaan, the promised land. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, referring to the Egyptian or the, the Exodus people. Just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Again, speaking of the wilderness wanderers. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Citing Genesis in the creation account. Verse 5. And again in this passage above, he says, They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good things proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience... God again set a certain day calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's from Psalm 95. It starts in Hebrews 3, but it's quoted three different times. I'm popping a lot. Is there something I need to do? If you want to give me a handheld, I can use that. That's fine. God again, uh, let's see. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Okay, let's let's turn this off, that's going to be dist- All right, yeah, yeah, that'll be much better. Okay, now, I don't know if anybody counted, but the word rest is used a ton in that passage. So let's start and just talk about what we mean and what we don't mean by rest, okay? This isn't a definition, but this is a description. Biblical rest is very different than you and I naturally think. Like all things, sin has distorted our understanding and our practice of rest. And so when you're talking about rest scripturally, know that we're talking about a distinct God ordained, God provided gift. Okay? This is, it's different, it's distinct. God designed it, it's God ordained, and God gives it as a gift. It's not merely an inactiveness or an idleness from work, okay? That's how our culture likes to think about it. Nor is it a rest that can be worked for or achieved by human effort. It's a rest found only in receiving and trusting the one who worked on our behalf. Okay. It's a rest that only can be received from Jesus who achieved it and offers it to us freely. I make the distinction that it's, it's not mere uh, inactivity from work because for me, I'm a man, in my mind, rest is just like doing nothing and staying alive at the same time. Thinking nothing, doing nothing, nothing. And yet still living that's not that's not rest that's not the rest that God designed okay that's escapism it's not rest not biblical rest at the same time it's not just a rest that's achieved okay it's not our cultural understanding of rest where work like a dog serve the man for 30 years and then get your retirement and and have an eternity of shuffleboard and four o'clock dinners okay if I offended you forgive me give me time I'll offend others okay that's how we've interpreted rest as a culture. That's not God's idea of rest. Some of us, some of us put that on, on heaven, like we work really hard for God, and then we're going to be able to spend eternity doing nothing, and somehow that's good news. That's not how God describes heaven. Okay. We see this distinction clearly in Jesus' Jesus's words in Matthew 11. I know Levi shared these the first week of this series, I don't have them on the screen. Just listen. Listen to how Jesus describes rest and how distinct it is from what you and I usually long for or think of. Come to me. First of all, rest is found where? In Jesus, not apart from him, in him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Anybody here weary and burdened? Summer's coming. That just means time to get busy. right? We all, we're foolish. We're like, oh, I just can't wait to rest in the summer. Have you looked at how we spend our summers? Who rests in the summer? All you who are weary and heavy. If you're feeling weary or if you're feeling burdened, Jesus has something for you. It's called rest. And I will give you, what's the word? Rest. How does he give this rest? Take my yoke. Wait a second. Yoke is an instrument of work. Work. You put two oxen together and you put a yoke on them and you harness the power of both. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. See, in that day, not only was it an instrument of work, but it's what it's a, it's a visual that rabbis started to use to say, when you're taking my yoke, you're taking my learning, you're taking my teaching, you're taking my way of life upon you. So Jesus isn't talking about inactivity. He's not talking about just something you get later. He's saying, right now, if you want to enter my rest, if you're weary and burdened, take my instrument of work, take my way of living and being upon you, and what's he promised? For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He doesn't say you'll find rest for your bodies. He doesn't say you'll just find rest for your mind. He doesn't just say you'll find rest for your thoughts. He doesn't just say you'll find rest for your relationships. He says you'll find rest for your souls. Your soul is the place that your mind, your body, your relationships, it all flows from. See, we settle for shallow rest. He wants us to take us to the deep waters of his rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so what I want us to see this morning, what I don't want to move on until we catch, is that rest is not simply a gift Jesus gives. It is the gift he becomes. I don't just receive rest From Jesus, I discover rest in Jesus. It's similar to Jesus' sacrifice. We know, we celebrate this. We know that Jesus didn't just make a sacrifice for us. Jesus what? He becomes our sacrifice. Amen? He becomes our atoning sacrifice. He doesn't just do this for us. He becomes it. It's the same with his rest. Jesus doesn't just work rest for us. Jesus becomes our rest as we discover what living from a place of rest in Him means. And so what I want you to see this morning before we work through Hebrews 4 is that Jesus invites us to recognize and to receive Him as our rest. If someone to say, hey, well, what, does, what does rest mean? Insert the Sunday school answer. Jesus. If you want to know rest, know Jesus. If you want to discover rest, discover Jesus. If you want to experience rest, experience Jesus. You will not, cannot find rest apart from Jesus. And it's not just something he wants to dispense to you. It's something he invites you to discover as you dwell together in him. It's an invitation he gives, and it's an invitation of nothing less and nothing more than himself. Now this is what the author of Hebrews is is making abundantly clear as he emphasizes four very distinct truths. I, I wanna outline all four. We'll be all throughout the passage, but I'm not gonna do it in a linear way. And I'm gonna try to buzz through the first two because I wanna spend some time on the last two, which are a little bit more personal and practical. First one is this, God's heart is to give rest. You need to know that God's heart is to give rest. Verse 4 cites creation, okay? Hebrews 4.4, on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. God rules and reigns from a place of rest. Have You ever thought about that? See, this is one of those things where we're like, which one is it? Is God resting or is God working? Yes. Jesus says in John 4 that my father is always at work, but he's working from a place of rest. And so his heart is one of rest. Our God is not hurried. Our God is not worried. He is neither frantic nor frenzied. Our God knows rest. He exists in rest and he created rest as a gift. And yet sometimes we've turned the gift back into a slave driver. Like it's one more, oh, I don't rest well. I came to church and I don't rest. That's what people were doing in Jesus' day. Oh, you can't do that on the Sabbath. You can't do that on the Sabbath. You can't do it. As if God's rest is all about one specific day. It's like, whoa, Jesus has to remind them. He says, wait a second. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Man was not made for Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. God gave you Sabbath as a gift. It's there to serve you. You're not there to serve it. The people who had been delivered from Egypt, who were given a new way of life, the Sabbath being part of it, hundreds of years later have now turned Sabbath into their new master. Isn't that tragic? So it's a foundational to understand that God rules and reigns from a place of rest. He's not fragile. He doesn't need you to rest. He invites you to rest. He's, he's not a cruel, slave-driving God who needs you to work for him. He invites you to rest in his provision and invites you to work with him in his eternal work throughout this world God's heart is to give rest secondly his promise of rest remains it still stands even now the author of Hebrews was trying to get his people to convince that that in their day his rest remains and in our day God's rest still remains see the illustration of these people that missed out on God's rest shouldn't lead us to think that God's rest is no longer available to us Our God is not a quick-tempered, grudge-holding God who says, I'm sick of you all. From now on, nobody gets my rest ever there. He doesn't do that. And in fact, if you look closely, it wasn't God who eliminated the wilderness wanderers from his rest. In his oath, he said, you'll never enter my rest, but that was a declarative statement. It wasn't necessarily a punitive statement. They had already decided that based on their disobedience. Look at this. It's all over the place. 3.19. I know we didn't read it, but it's the last verse before chapter 4. So we see that they were not able to enter because God got mad? No. They were not able to enter because what? Of their unbelief. Look at verse 6. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them because they did not go in because of their what? Disobedience. Okay? I skipped over verse 2. Verse 2, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, but just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them. Why wasn't it of any value to them? Because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. If you're not familiar with the story, I'm not going to read all of it, but you can see that God, by miraculous work after miraculous work, had freed them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He parted a sea for them. They fled Egypt. By, by day, he existed as a cloud to protect them from the heat. By night, he existed. He, he let his presence be known and felt as a fire because it's cold in the desert. And he led them. He led them right up to Can- Canaan, this land of promise, this land of rest. They sent, in two, they sent in 12 spies. Ten came back and said, The land is good. The grapes are awesome. The honey flows. The people are huge. They will kill us. It's Nate's summation. And they started grumbling. There was two young men who said, wait a second, Caleb is cited with a source, not this Caleb, but another Caleb. He says, God promised this to us, we should go in. And they said, we can't go in, they'll kill us. And listen to the tragedy of what happened. Numbers 14, 1. That night, all the members of their community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? That's not why the Lord was bringing them to this land. The Lord was bringing them to this land to give it to them. Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, Oh, the audacity of this. We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And so God, in anger, angry for the choices that his people made, said, I'll tell you, you're never going to enter my rest if that's your attitude. If you're going to experience me leading you out of Egypt, but you don't have the faith to put in me and obey to enter now Canaan, you're not going to discover my rest. And they don't. They die in the wilderness, the whole generation. But God is good. God is redemptive. So 40 years later, after that generation dies, he raises up a new leader. We read his name in the scripture. Anybody know it? Joshua. And Joshua has them cross a new body of water, the Jordan, by God's provision. And says, get ready because the Lord's going to give us all the land that he promised. And they settle in the land of Canaan. But the author of Hebrews' point is, listen, that wasn't the fulfillment of God's rest. Just because 40 years later they finally got to go into the land of rest doesn't mean that rest is off the table today or for us today. Again, look at it in Hebrews. Oh, I'm one-handed. It's tricky. Look at it in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. See, after Joshua would come a greater Yeshua. Yeshua is just the Hebrew derivative of where the Greek name Jesus comes from. Joshua let people settle Canaan. Jesus lets us dwell in his heart and experience his rest. See, God's promise of rest remains. And here's why you've got to pay attention. You cannot let the stress or the size of the obstacles in front of you dissuade you. Some of you look at May and June and July and you're overwhelmed. You you look at your checkbook and you're overwhelmed. You look at the people you work with in your workplace and you say, there's no way that I can enter rest until God takes care of that. And you're letting the size and the stress of the obstacles in front of you eliminate you from thinking that his promise of rest still stands. Nor can the mistakes or pain of the choices behind you. Some of you look at your history and you say, Nate, Nate, you don't understand. You don't know the mistakes I made. God will never let me enter. You, you think the children made mistakes in the wilderness? You think they grumbled them? You don't know my past. God's gotten angry with me. He's told me I can never enter his rest. No, 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 no. The evil one has told you that. God doesn't say it. His word says, today the rest remains. Neither can we let the patterns and the pressures of this world, this technologically driven electricity-ridden. Listen, I love electricity for the air conditioning. But the fact that we can keep the lights on until 2 in the morning and flip them back on at 6 in the morning is a curse. It's a curse. Don't let the stress and the size of the obstacles in front of you, nor the mistakes or pain of the choices behind you, nor the pressures and patterns of our culture all around you lead you to think that God's promise of rest has been taken from you. His rest remains. It's found and freely given only and always in Jesus. Even so, let's get practical. Here's the third point of emphasis on what we've got to realize. We too readily refuse his rest. See, this is the caution and the warning of verse 1 and verse 7. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Verse 7, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You see, believers, it is common, it is very possible. Dare I say, sometimes it's probable that we fall short of the rest that Jesus invites us to discover in him. Falling short is the defining characteristic of what sin is. Sin falls short of God's desire, God's intent for us. That's the nature of sin. And as in all things, including the rest he desires to give us, we fall short because we are, either, we are, A, unable to achieve rest for ourselves. We can't find rest for our souls. We can't achieve rest for our souls in this broken world. And we are unwilling. We fall short because we are unable and we are unwilling. And again, The people being delivered from Exodus are great illustrations of this. They were unable to conquer the people in Canaan. They weren't wrong. The people had settled there. They were fortified. That's where the whole um, story of Jericho comes in. Fortified walls, unconquerable city. We saw 40 years later how God handled that. Right? But the people couldn't do that. They were unable. But in their unbelief, they were also unwilling. And that's what I want you to understand about disobedience. Disobedience can be willful rebellion, absolutely. But disobedience is almost always rooted in this distrust, which results in a refusal to receive. See, we disobey when we don't, when we don't trust that God's able to make good on his promises. We transfer our inability onto God as if somehow he's unable. And then we become unwilling to follow him. Let me illustrate this. How many of you currently have or have had kids or watched kids when they're that preschool age, that toddler age of life? You there? Okay, go there with me. All right. You know how crucial, talking of rest, this beautiful little hour to an hour and a half in the middle of the day known as nap time is. Can I get an amen? All right. Not just for your survival, (laughs) but for theirs. Because if they stay up any longer, I'm going to kill them. No, okay? Now, let's say you made that horrible mistake of telling that preschool toddler-aged child in the morning of a fun thing you had planned to do at night. Anybody made that parenting mistake? Okay, I know my context, so let's just use the fair as an example. Let's say that you told them, hey, tonight, it looks like the weather's going to be good. We're going to go to the fair, and if you're good, we'll even get you cotton candy. What are you doing, parent? Because you know what they're going to do the rest of the day? We're going to the fair! We're going to the fair! And they are wired. Now, magical 1.30 comes around. They were getting hangry at about 11.30 noon. By God's grace, you took care of that, made a little sandwich, okay? We got them past the hangar, But they've been running, they've been running. They need a, say it with me, nap. Why? Because you're going to have a late night and a big night coming, right? You are a loving parent. You weren't born yesterday. You know that a nap now is crucial for them to enjoy the fair later. You following me? But what are they thinking? You don't love me. I don't want to take a nap. I don't need a nap. I love that. I love it when they're bringing I don't need a nap. And I just want to hold up a mirror and say, oh, yeah, you do. Right? Now, follow this. If they kick and scream and work themselves up to such a frenzy, which, by the way, parents, give yourself some grace. We've all been there. We're all laughing because we've all experienced it. You're not the world's worst parent when that happens, okay? And they work themselves into such a frenzy that they refuse to sleep or it just doesn't happen. Listen, they are refusing the night that you have planned for them, not just because you're going to give up and say, fine, we're not going, (laughs) but even if you go, What's what's five minutes into the fair if they didn't get a nap going to be like? My legs hurt. I'm tired. Can you carry? Can we go now? Why is the line so long for the cotton candy? Right? Amen. Disobedience is distrust, which results in a refusal to receive, and it's not just kids that do it. Proverbs 15.1, gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This week, did any of us choose to distrust the wisdom of God's word? And we responded with something other than a gentle answer? Because, God, you can't seriously let them get away with that. I have to say something. Right? And instead of a gentle answer, you decide to insert a harsh word in response. How'd that work out for you? Did you receive the relationship God wants? Disobedience is distrust, which results in a refusal to receive. How about how God's physically designed our bodies? We have been given the grace of limitations. Your body is designed for sleep. And if you're burning it all day and then burning it at night till midnight or 1 o'clock doing something productive or playing the video games, and then you're getting up at 6 a.m. and you're doing that day after day after day, you, my friend, are disobeying God's design for your physical body. And in doing so, you are refusing to receive the life attitudinally, emotionally, and physically he desires to give you. And I know you've convinced yourself just like that toddler of why you have too many things to do and you can't afford eight hours of sleep. But it's no different. I don't want to wear this out, but I don't want to miss this. This is, the, this is the primary takeaway of this message. Do not skip past the caution of refusing the rest that God designs for you to discover in Jesus. Where are you refusing Where are you readily refusing because you're failing to trust? Listen, it happens in areas of righteousness. Look at verse 10. This is what Jesus is talking about here. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. Is he talking about just physical work? No, because biblical rest isn't just inactivity, so there's work to be done. What work is he talking about? I submit to you the works of righteousness. Read the context of Hebrews. He's talking about how we become righteous in Christ, where our source of righteousness comes from. He says, just as God did from his. So what work did God rest from? His work of working righteousness. Do you know where his righteousness was accomplished for you and I? On the cross. See, we we look at the cross and we only look at one side of the cross. We focus on our sins being taken away. Praise God they were because we need our sins to be forgiven. Don't mishear me. Jesus took away our sins from the cross. But the cross is not just an instrument of taking away. The cross is also the instrument by which he gives us his righteousness. Are you still working to try to show God that he was wise in picking you to be on his team? Are you spending all your thoughts to say, man, I'm glad I'm not like those other sinners that call Crossroads Napoleon home. Can't get their acts together. Jesus told a story about that. His righteousness has been freely given to you. Don't keep working for something you've already received. Rest in it and live from his righteousness. Don't live for his righteousness. He's given it to you. How about anxiety? How about worry? Are you resting in Jesus there? He gives you very clear instructions. He says don't look past the lilies and don't look past the sparrows. When's the last time you've meditated on a bird or a flower? I'm not being funny. When's the last time you looked at a flower and said, man, that's beautiful. That's going to dry up in about a week. And yet God has clothed that flower with that splendor for a week. How much more valuable am I? That's a, that is almost verbatim the lesson Jesus is teaching. Look at the birds and say, man, that bird's going to get hit by a truck tonight. And yet that's the ability God's given that bird. How much more valuable am I? And what's the takeaway? If God cares for that, then let, let tomorrow's worries about, worry about tomorrow because today has enough of its own, right? Jesus is saying, focus on today. Let me worry about tomorrow. My, my youngest loves to know plans. He's a little planner. And so he's already at, yesterday. He was peppering me with questions about tonight and tomorrow for Walleye. And I said, you know what? Just let me and Mr. Todd worry about that. You just got to show up, O. Oh. His name's Oliver. We call him O. I got to show up, oh? Okay, yeah, right. But what time do you think we're going to have to get up in the morning, right? That's what we do. We don't rest in his trust to take care of tomorrow because we got too much worrying and anxiety to do. How's your morning routine? How do you start your day? How are your holy habits? Is there anything distinct about the way you start your day? How about the end of your day? If you've got families, well, what do you do with meal time? How distinct is your mealtime? Or do you eat on the run like everybody else? I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just trying to hold up the mirror and say, where are you by distrust refusing the rest that Jesus wants to give? If you're married, are you going to bed together? Or have you fallen into that prey of, well, she likes to go to bed early. I stay up and watch a little bit of TV. That's okay to do once in a while. And I don't have a scripture and verse for this. But if that's your daily routine, you are missing rest in your relationship. In the oneness God has given you. Because you've just kind of settled into a pattern of this world, I'm asking poignantly because the passage should be applied practically. And here's the takeaway: there's a corporate aspect on it, which I'm going to delve on, and then the personal application, which I'm not going to hit very much over very much more. So just relax, okay? That was that was enough stepping on toes. Here's the application: it's in verse 11. Make every effort to receive the rest that he gives. It takes effort to receive this rest. Now, I wanna make this abundantly clear, don't mishear me. We are not working for rest, we're working from rest. Our effort is not to achieve rest, but to intentionally receive rest. Learning to daily recognize, receive, and trust Jesus to be our rest is not easy, okay? It's simple, but it's not easy. The illustration I use for this all the time is golf. Simple game little little white ball into the hole, few strokes as possible. Not complicated, right? Not easy. I won't play. I might lose my salvation. And I don't even believe in that, okay? Not easy. Not easy. Simple. Not easy. We have to make every effort to receive the rest that Jesus invites us to receive because it's simple, but it's not easy. And so, There's a corporate application, which is why I'm here on behalf of the fellowship to just affirm you for. As a body and specifically your elders, I just want to say on behalf of the entire fellowship, way to go Crossroads, Napoleon. For making every effort to make sure your pastors are serving you from a place of rest by instituting a godly practice known as sabbaticals. Well done. The joke is pastors only work one day a week. And when I was a pastor, I used to add in and we only have to work hard on Christmas and Easter. But the truth, there, there's nothing could be further from the truth. There is a unique weight that affects you physically. It affects you spiritually. It affects you relationally. It affects you emotionally to, to doing this thing called vocational ministry and i just i can't put it into words for you but i can tell you i've experienced it for 25 years i received my paycheck from a church directly it takes a toll and and we forget that our shepherds are first and foremost sheep shepherds they're not just under shepherds they're sheep shepherds which means if they're going to lead they've got to be led if they're going to care and tend for your souls, they've got to allow their souls to be cared and tended to. If they're going to protect you, they have to allow themselves to be protected. There's this occupational hazard. It's, it almost works like the dripping. Anybody got your faucet that's got that brown stain because it just drips and drips and drips and drips and drips and it erodes? Anybody got it? Nobody wants to admit that. Some of you do. You know who you are. That's what it looks like to a pastor's soul over time. Nothing wrong, nothing sinful, but just over time, the hardness of the water of vocational ministry starts to leave a mark on the soul of a pastor. And so you have been so wise because you are instituting sabbaticals not as a reactive like bed rest. Hey, you burned yourself out. You need to take some bed rest. Praise God, Wes and Lynn haven't burned themselves out. By God's grace, Levi and Rachel won't burn themselves out because you're a church that put a stake in the ground and said, we're going to make every effort to make sure our pastor's souls are cared for because they're making every effort to make sure our souls are cared for. Amen? So you're not offering sabbaticals as bed rest. You're offering sabbaticals as go-to-bed early rest. Right? Tonight, my boys are going to be in bed early. You know why? We're going to be up real early tomorrow, and I want them to enjoy the day. So we are going to wisely institute more rest on this side because we know what's coming on that side. I said this in first service and made Lynn cry, and she's mad at me, and she'll get over it. I know that, I know that um, we're all dispensable. God doesn't need any of us, and God has his way of getting things done. But because I've, I've seen this from the beginning, I can tell you personally Crossroads and Napoleon may not exist and certainly wouldn't exist and be the church that it is today without Wes and Lynn Hoffmeyer. <laughs> and so kudos to have them go first on this sabbatical journey because they went first 13-ish years ago. In fact, you might not know this about Wes's story, but he had, he had taken some time away from vocational ministry. And was in the secular counseling world it wasn't easy to jump back in and yet he chose to because God led him to do that so kudos kudos family I just want to say this about sabbaticals I don't think that there it sounds like you guys have all been supportive of this but I just want you to know this There, there are some occupational hazards that make sabbaticals for pastors incredibly important in fact In my office right now, we're covering for our president of FEC because he's on a three-month sabbatical after 11 years of faithful service. But again, I want to make the point, a sabbatical is not necessarily a reward, it is preparation. They'll receive their reward in heaven, okay? There's nothing that a summer trip can do to adequately reward them for their faithfulness. They'll receive that in heaven. This is about saying, you're valuable, we want you for the long term, go get rested, Go get refreshed, rediscover the love and the joy of your call, and then come back and serve your hearts out. There are some occupational hazards. I'll mention just three that sometimes as sheep in the flock we forget about. The first, the first hazard I would identify is familiarity. One of my favorite authors, Paul David Tripp, says this. He says, there's a scary dynamic of familiarity. The more you are near something and the more familiar it becomes, the less you actually see and appreciate the thing in the way you once did. These first couple of years of Crossroads Napoleon, my brother down here from another mother, he was downright giddy. I don't know if he's as giddy as he once was. And that's okay. It's okay. But there's something about becoming familiar. See, as pastors and pastors' wives, we don't miss Christmas. We don't miss Easter. We don't miss, miss the extra prayer service. We don't miss the Sunday morning Bible studies. We don't miss the small group. We do it over and over and over. And when one, when you discover that for the first time, you say, this is awesome. It is but we're not necessarily as awestruck by the awesome because we've been there, done that. And your soul starts to lose its aweness. And so a sabbatical is a great gift to say, get the awe back. Tripp says sometimes as pastors we become awe deficient in terms of God. Another thing is just fatigue. There's a 24-7 nature, always on aspect of the role that you just need to be aware of. And again, they can't tell you this, but I can. It's not, it's not always heavy, but it's always got the potential to be. The phone can always ring, and if they're wise, they shouldn't answer it on the first call. I would tell them that. So if they didn't answer your first call, don't get angry. They're just following the fellowship's advice. But eventually it rings, and it needs to be answered. I remember personally, I shared this in first service. It dawned on me that I, there was, it was a Labor Day. And we, we were excited because we had just come off a tiring summer. As a youth pastor, summers can be tiring because you're just doing things with kids nonstop, and they don't have school to keep them occupied, so their parents turn to you. And, and we finally were just going to have some time with just some friends, no teenagers allowed. <laughs> and we had a barbecue going on, and literally I had, I had the dogs or the steaks or whatever we were grilling on the grill, and my phone rang, and I ignored it because that's what I do the first time. And then it rang again, and then it rang again. I looked, I'm like, man, Brett's tried to call me three times in a row, I better answer this. I answered it, he goes, Nate, I'm so sorry, I know it's Labor Day, but you gotta get over here. He had just taken a teen into his home. He said, I just found him, he had hung himself in the barn. The meat is on the grill cooking. I look at Justin, I say, finish this up, honey, I gotta go, I can explain later, I don't know when I'll be home. And I'm gone. Now listen, it was an honor to receive that invitation. I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else, okay? To be able to walk with people through the horrors of what this life throws at them, that's part of why we do what we do. The point is that's wearing. It's a privilege, but just like bringing a home on infant, it's exhausting. And it never stops. A healthy church never grows out of it. It's not like there's just an infant stage and then it's done. And so there's a familiarity, there's a fatigue, and then just the exposure. Your pastors are exposed to more conflict, more difficulty, more crisis in terms of frequency or degree than any of you can appreciate. And so there's more, and again, I don't know if Wessex is experiencing any of those or what degree. I didn't ask him. But I just want you to know that's why, as a fellowship, we've placed such a high priority on sabbaticals. And so thank you, as a body. Thank you, elders, for choosing to do that, okay? Let me wrap up with a personal application. I would just encourage you to take an inventory of your own thoughts, your own attitudes, and your own actions. Are you finding yourself thinking, feeling, and responding from a place of rest in Jesus? Evaluate your daily practices. I stepped on some. How are you going to bed? How are you getting up in the morning? If I looked at, if I looked at one day of your life, w- would I say that's more patterned after Jesus, or does that look like every other person who lives in Henry County? Because if, if the daily rhythm of your life looks like the daily rhythm of people who don't know Jesus, then how much rest are you really experiencing in Jesus? It's an invitation. Don't don't refuse the rest that he wants to offer. What's occupying your thoughts? Related, what are you feeding your thoughts and your attitudes with? What, what goes in comes out. So what's going in? Does your word time exceed your, your surfing the net time? Does your quiet time exceed your noise time? How do you use your commute? If you have a commute to work, are you listening to the Wonderful wisdom of morning radio hosts? Or are you taking time to just look at the birds and the lilies? Evaluate. D- don't refuse the rest. And again, physical, yes. But mental, attitudinal, reactional rest that Jesus invites. I'll wrap this up. Are we? Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. I... Missed time for worship in this first service, and no surprise, I did it again this service. I don't, and friends, I don't anticipate our pandemic of hurry, worry, and busyness going away anytime soon. Okay? That's a pandemic that this side of glory we're going to have to live in because technology keeps making it so wonderful for us to live in hurry, worry, and busyness. But it's in the darkness of that reality that Jesus' invitation to discover his rest shines so brilliantly. And so, recognize Jesus is your rest. Come to know him as a better Sabbath. Don't be enslaved to the Sabbath. Be connected to Jesus. Rest in his thoughts, his attitudes, his actions. They are available, always. Always. Always and only to those who will do the great exchange with him. His life for yours, yours for his. I don't preach as much anymore, but every time I preach, I find myself quoting Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You want to know Jesus' rest for your life? Quit trying to live your life. Put your life up on the cross and let him suck all the life out of it so that he can pour all of his life into it. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith, by trust. I get rid of all this distrust that's keeping me from receiving, and I learn to live by trust in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the invitation that's available. If you haven't made good on that invitation, if you haven't accepted that invitation, if you aren't living in the in the rhythm of that invitation, then my advice out of our passage today is today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. I'll take that cue from the kids. Let's wrap up and pray. Lord, what a joy to open your word. What a joy to get insight into your heart. God, thank you that rest is central to who you are. Thank you for the the aha moments you gave me this week to just contemplate the fact that you rule and reign from a place of rest. Lord, I want to live my busy life from a place of rest. And to do that, I know I need to find ways to get a little less busy, but more than that, Lord, I need to find a way to pace my heart in your heart. I need to let you choose what I get involved in and what I don't. I need to remember that you're the Lord and Savior. I'm not. I need to remember that people are dependent upon you. They're not dependent upon me. Jesus, taking your yoke upon me, learning from your gentle and lowliness of heart, I need it, and I know I'm not alone. And so today we just say thank you. Thank you for the goodness of your invitation, and we say, Holy Spirit, help Help us trust you. Help us receive. Help us make sure that we don't resist your your rest. Keep us from being hard-hearted to say, oh, that's just idealism. That's just ideal preacher talking. Doesn't he know I work for a living? Lord, help us all trust you. Because none of us work for a living. We all trust for a living. We trust you. So together with my brothers and sisters, To everything your word has taught us, we say yes and amen. Amen and amen. Have a great, restful week.